Well, it is a privilege to be here. I have <clears throat> heard about Ridgeview Bible Church from a few people, notably Greg Allen and a handful of others. But yeah, I was pleasantly surprised, really excited, actually. There was no cyclones, there was no tornadoes, there was no blizzards. It was just glorious. I mean, today was like the best possible weather. It was just unbelievable. And I got to have steak. I was telling somebody before I started, uh, like one of my top three things to do on this trip is to eat a steak from Nebraska. And so item number one checked off the list. It was good too. So thank you for welcoming me. Um, I'm going to try and press into a few areas. We've got three sessions together, and I'm going to kind of structure it. In message number one, we're going to talk about why goers need to go and what they are to do when they go. So it's going to center around goers. Uh, Tomorrow morning's message is going to center around senders, and good senders make good goers, and good senders typically come from good churches. And so part of uh, the emphasis will be on how good senders within good churches can send well. And then the third and final session will be obstacles to being a good goer and a good sender. And so that's kind of the thrust that we're going to go after. Uh, We'll start with kind of our theme verse that we're getting into tonight. And then tomorrow we'll get into Matthew 28 and Romans 15 as well. So that's the general track that I'm going to be shooting for. And we'll, Lord willing, uh, be able to mine some good things out of the Word of God and Uh, hopefully speak to how you guys can be involved in God's heartbeat, God's plan for the nations from 2,000 years ago when our Savior ascended back into heaven. His one final command was, take this message about me, take it to the nations, take it to the places that haven't heard. And so, yeah, that'll be the thrust of where we're going. So before we get into that, I'll give you a little bit of background on myself. So I... um, I lead Radius, as Bert said. Radius is a training school. We're not a setting agency. We train missionaries to take the gospel to places around the world where there are no churches. We like the terminology of unreached language groups over unreached people groups. Unreached people groups is a little nebulous today. Uh, So we train people to go, and we usually have max amount of students. So we have 63 this year. Uh, We'll take 65 next year but we have more applicants than we have space typically. So we are growing in a lot of different ways. We also have Radius Asia, which is over in Taichung, Taiwan, and then a second campus that is coming to Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Those are both in Mandarin. If you speak fluent Mandarin, you can be a teacher or a student there. If you don't, it's probably just going to be some great food and a good visit. That'll be about it. Uh, And then we have another campus coming to Lucknow, India. That's in northern India, and that will be all in Hindi. So we're trying to help our brothers and sisters around the world who want to be involved in the Great Commission, who aren't English speakers, but have some great distinct advantages in getting into some of these difficult contexts. And so that's some of the thrust of what I do right now. Before I did that, uh, way, 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 way back in the beginning, I'll give you a little bit of history. I met my wife in college. Uh, Freshman orientation, I'm sitting there as a freshman, and in walks the orientation coordinator. It was this drop-dead gorgeous blonde girl. And I looked to the guy next to me and said, I'm going to marry that girl. And he said, good luck. Do you see the guy that walked in behind her? Uh, He's like the Apostle Paul on campus. He's uh, the music leader. He's a great guy. They've been dating for three years. They're looking at engagement rings. Uh, Good luck. So anyways, that was... I kind of tallied up my resources. I had about 50 bucks in the bank, a really uh, bad Honda Civic. And somehow, by God's incredible grace, um, he headed off to seminary. I asked her on a date. 
she ran it by him, and he said, eh, sure, why not? And that was the beginning of the end for them. So, but a great beginning for me. So we ended up getting married, graduated from a small liberal arts Christian college. Uh, back then it was called Christian Heritage. Now it's called San Diego Christian College. Some of you that have heard of David Jeremiah, that's his college. Uh, he's been a dear friend. My wife was a new believer coming into college, and she was discipled well in that church and ended up uh, going from that church with me. And we graduated, and we were like most college students. We had uh, student debt. And so I got out and I had a degree in business. She had a degree in counseling psychology. And so I started working as an accountant and eventually worked my way up to CFO, Chief Financial Officer of a Dutch multinational. So I worked over in the Netherlands quite a bit, a little bit in Germany, a little bit in France. And we were out of our student loans within nine months, uh, $60,000 or so. Uh, we were able to get out of that pretty quickly. And we started looking at houses where we were going to buy a house and a place on the beach in San Diego that was really expensive, but we were making good money and we were still attending our church. We were faithful church members. Uh, we were looking at private schools for our son to attend. Uh, my wife and I were getting new cars and there was all sorts of things. And guys, I, I praise God to this day and I, I point this more towards the young people in the crowd the reason that we got challenged into missions wasn't because we walked out of the ocean one day uh, after walking around down there and we saw Papua New Guinea in the sand or we saw Go Ye in the clouds or something like that. We never got a missionary call, so to speak. The only call we got was from reading this book and the confirmation of our local church elders. What our church elders said, yeah, we see the gifting in you guys. We see some uh, background to you guys possibly doing this. And so Based on the word of God, we walked away from that job. Uh, we went off at that time. It was called New Tribes. Now it's called Ethnos 360. We joined them. We got two years of training, and then we headed to the country of Papua New Guinea. If you're going to take the gospel to an unreached language group in 2022, and it was the same back when we went, uh, in 2003, you have to learn two languages. You've got to learn the language of the country where the people group exists, and then you have to learn the actual language of the unreached language group. And so uh, we learned the national language fairly quickly. And then I'll never forget uh, the mission leadership coming to us, and they handed us a list. And on this list were seven people groups who had been asking for missionaries for five years or more. They didn't make the list unless they had been asking for five consecutive years. So they asked for three years, and then they forget the fourth year, they don't make the list. And so there was actually one group on there that broke our hearts. They'd been asking for 12 years, 12 years to get on that piece of paper for somebody to come, some team to come and bring the gospel to them. And so our team prayed over that list, and we chose the people group uh, that had been asking for 12 years. And the day came for the airplane to land at our base camp and was going to take us to the nearest possible airfield and drop us off. And uh, the pilot got out and he said, guys, I got good news and bad news. The good news is it's a great flying day. The weather's wonderful. The bad news is the airfield where I was going to drop you guys off at, they had six inches of rain at night. They've got a ton of water on the middle of it. We are not landing there. What's your second choice? And so we pulled out that piece of paper again. And there was a people group on there called the Yembi Yembi people. 
And so we quickly scribbled out on a piece of paper a note that says, we're coming to your village, please be kind. Because we'd heard the Yembyembys were kind of dominant, hostile people. And we took off in the airplane, flew over, and we turned the airplane on its side when we saw the village, looked around quite a bit, and then I took this water bottle that was empty, put that note in there, and we threw it out, I'll never forget, thrown it out, and there's this little kid who was running to catch the note. And I'm thinking, the first Yembi we meet, I'm going to kill him. Like, it's going to hit him in the head, and he's going to die, and it's just going to be horrible. And luckily, he wasn't fast enough. Water bottle hits the ground, and everybody comes in from the jungle because we couldn't see them. There was just an opening there, and they pulled the note out. We didn't know if they could read it or not. It was in the national language. And uh, we flew off, and we landed at the nearest airfield, and then we got in motor canoes. Motor canoes are canoes about as long as this room, and they've got outboard motors on the back. And we started motor canoeing towards Yembi And seven hours later, we pulled into Yembi and got the greeting of a lifetime. If the Yembies like you, don't ask what they do, if they don't like you, but if they like you, they take a huge hunk of mud, they shove it in your face, and then they push it all the way down to your Adam's apple. Then they take diced up flower petals, they whip those at your face, and it sticks to the mud, and now you look beautiful. Now you're ready to come into the village. And so that, that was our welcome into Yembi Yembi. Uh, the first time we went in there, took a bunch of language samples, video clips, uh, some other things, and then we went back out and we talked with our mission leadership, uh, our churches, and our wives and uh, kids particularly, and everybody agreed, we think this is the place that God has us going. So we went back in, same route again, and we told the Yembies, we're coming to be your missionaries, and we're going to do four things. Number one, we're going to learn your language. We're going to learn to speak like you speak. Number two, we're going to teach you how to read and write in your own language. They didn't have an alphabet in their language, so we had to develop an alphabet for them. And then number three, there's this really important book. We're going to translate some smaller books that are not that important, but we're going to translate this one big book, and that book is really, really important. And the fourth thing we're going to do is we're going to teach you that book from cover to cover. That's what we're going to do. And when we're done with those four things, we're going to leave. We're not here forever. We're here to get those four jobs done. And so I'll never forget the Yembies. Uh, they said, okay, that's great. Well, if you're going to come live among us, and again, we're working through interpreters and we can only use the national language. If you're going to come live among us, you're going to have to be adopted into clans. So in Yembi, there's four clans. There's the ostrich clan, the eagle clan, the black cockatoos, and the toucans. They're all birds. They were brothers, the four brothers that all the people group came from. And they looked at me. I'm a little tall. Uh, I've got a little bit of a crooked nose from playing college basketball. And they said, you're definitely in the ostrich clan. So they put me in the ostrich clan. My wife has long blonde hair and they put her in the eagle clan. And our other coworkers, they put in these other clans based on our physical attributes. And so uh, we started becoming, uh, we started learning the language. We were building our houses. And three weeks into it, the Yembies came to us again, some of the leaders, the men, and they asked us, uh, we want to know if you guys have ever killed a wild boar before. And one of the guys was from Minnesota. He killed like a pig on like a, a farm somewhere with like a shotgun or something. He says, I've, I've killed a pig. And he goes, no, no, no. Have you killed a wild boar at night with a spear by yourself? I'm like, what? No, we've never done any of that. So they kind of huddled up. And later on, we found out for a boy to change into a man in Yembi he has to kill a boar at night with a spear by himself. And we were these strange aberrations. We were these large-bodied guys that had never done these things. And so they came up with a new name for us. You know what they called us? Overgrown boys. We were these bigger guys, but somehow we'd been allowed to marry and to father children 
And yet we'd never killed a boar at night with a spear by ourselves. And so we were like, oh, thick. So we, be, we better do this if we're going to be respected, if the message is going to come. And so sure enough, we dedicated nine months while we're doing language study. Every guy has taken his shot with his clan and trying to figure out how to sneak through the jungle. Six foot two guys do not sneak through the jungle very well. And so that was an arduous process. Eventually we all got a born. We were inducted into the real, we became real men. So anyways, that was part of it. We had to get remarried. We had to get new names. We had to go through all of these different things so that when the gospel came, the gospel didn't come as an outsider. It came as an insider from someone that they knew that they respected, that had walked the trails with them, that had lived with them, that they'd seen we could do some of these things with them. So I think there's a model in Scripture that we see from the life of Jesus. I mean, if you, if you think about it critically for just a moment, do you realize that Jesus could have parachuted in as a 28-year-old, just shown up on the scene? We know very little, apart from the account in Luke, where he goes to the temple, we know very little about his upbringing. We know about his birth, but we don't know anything up until about 30 years of age. And he could have arrived at that. But Jesus, the ultimate missionary who left the best home, the best family, the best living situation possible, came to earth as a child. He ate our food. He learned our language. He was known by the by the surrounding area. Those are his brothers and sisters. He's the carpenter's son. He was a known commodity to the people there, gaining all of that credibility for three years of ministry. One through 30, very little is known. Three years of ministry. And I think there's a little bit of a model in there to where missions, when we're taking the gospel, especially to these places that are new to it, that are very, very difficult, but are getting exposure for the first time to build that level of credibility, not for yourselves, but for the gospel. So that when the gospel comes, we know this person. We know how he learned our language. We know how he walked through the trails. We know how him and his wife live. We've seen his son grow up before us, before our very eyes. And so this added credibility to the gospel. And tomorrow, I'll get into a little bit how we shared the gospel with the Yembis. But after teaching for about four and a half months, we saw the kernel of a church born. We have about a thousand Yembi Yembis in the tribe. <clears throat> Excuse me. And about 45 to 50 of them became believers after we had presented the gospel. Uh, we walked them from Genesis all the way through <coughs> to uh, Matthew 28. And those 45 and 50, how they lived and how they died, brought more and more people to the church to where today it's over 500 people that are part of the MBMB Bible Church is what they call it. And so I go back there one week from today. Uh, I try and go back every year. Last year, like this conference that you guys have, it was canceled because of COVID, but I get to go back there next week. And it will be immensely hard on the body, but it will be wonderful <laughs> to see them and to be part of that community. If you got your Bibles, turn over to Acts chapter 26. Let's look at a few passages tonight, and let's look at, again, the need for goers to go and what they are to do once they arrive among unreached language groups. And that's specifically kind of the, the point I'm going to drive at, generally in missions, but more speaking towards the act of what global ambassadors, what ambassadors to unreached people are supposed to do. So Acts 26, verse 15, let's just recap the backstory. So Paul, thank you very much, brother. Appreciate it. Paul has been imprisoned 
and he's been in prison for a couple years now. He has been waiting trial, and he's about to be sent to Caesar. And Agrippa, who is a uh, friend to Festus, the king, comes in, and Paul's giving a defense of who he is, and he lays out his conversion, how Paul got saved. Remember, this was a monumental conversion. When Paul actually got saved, he, the Lord literally broke into his life, just knocked him off his horse. What an incredible story. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, to the vast majority of us in this room, this is how this brother comes. And he's recounting this story to King Agrippa, and he says this in verse 15. We'll start there. And I said, who are you, Lord? Because the Lord knocks him off his horse, and the Lord says to him, why are you persecuting me? And the Lord said to him, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. This is where we get the apostle to the Gentiles. He's sending him to the Gentiles. And here comes the kicker, verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. From darkness to light, from Satan to God, this is your role, Paul. I'm sending you out. So two things that I want to pull out of this passage, two main thrusts that we see Paul emphasize at the tail end of it. Number one, people cannot be saved unless the gospel is preached to them. People can't be saved. You can airdrop tracks. We've had people over in Papua New Guinea, they rented an airplane for an afternoon and they would paper a village, just fly over and drop tracks out everywhere. You can show Jesus films. You can do a whole myriad of things that are helpful in certain circumstances. I'm not against tracks. Tracks are helpful. I had a guy in my church that I love dearly that was saved because somebody shared a tract with him. There's a great avenue for the Jesus film when someone saved but to be taught the word of God, to understand the gospel, that comes by someone teaching. People do not get saved unless the gospel comes to them. And Paul will emphasize this further in Romans 10. Turn over to Romans 10 because this is kind of the quintessential verse for how Paul saw people getting saved, to reemphasize the teaching of God's word. Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Praise God. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Man, people who understand their sins. There's so much packed into that one sentence. To understand your sinfulness before a holy God, to understand that Christ is the only way for unsaved man to make it to God's side, to be saved, to be brought over. The Yembis in Yembi Yembi, they don't have a great term for savior. You know what they call the one who brings us from Satan's side to God's side? They call him the bridge man. When, we have, when we're, we're on huge hiking parties sometimes, we'll have about 200 people and there's these big, deep ravines. And so we'll drop a tree across the ravine. And when we drop the tree across the ravine, sometimes it lands well, sometimes it lands crooked, sometimes it's a skinny tree, sometimes I work my way over on my butt. But there are older people and there are young kids who do not have the strength who are too nervous that cannot go from one side to the other. So there is a designated man in the village, probably the strongest guy we've got, who's got the surest footing, and he will put them on his back. And their only job is to hold perfectly still. You hang on to that guy. That's all you've got. And that guy 
will walk them slowly across that ravine and he'll bring them to the other side safely. And that's what they called the Christ, was the bridge man, the one who takes us from Satan's side to God's side, unable to do it ourselves, but through the bridge man and through his action. And our only job, you hang on to that guy. You hang on to that guy because he'll save you, but you can't do it yourself. And Paul points to this here. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he says this, a series of rhetorical statements. This is where you English majors, you know what a rhetorical statement is? It's a question or it's a statement that everybody knows the answer to. He says these series of rhetorical statements. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Well, they can't. You can't call on somebody that you haven't believed in. Then he presses it further. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How do you believe in somebody that you've never even heard about? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? These are all rhetorical statements that we all know the answer to. They can't, they can't, they can't, they can't. This is not possible unless someone goes, someone preaches to them, Preach, teach, bring the word of God, make it clear in their culture in an understandable way, in a language that they can understand so that the gospel can have its full flavor and power in their language. Paul identifies three things in this verse. Someone's got to go to them. That person must preach the gospel to them. Those people have to be sent. And we're going to talk about that tomorrow. How do good senders, Ridgeview Bible Church, how do you, how do you raise up? Because here's the honest truth. From this group, and however many we have tomorrow, probably only about 10% of you can actually be goers, can actually be people who take the gospel. So there's about 90% of you that by God's good grace can be good senders, can raise up a generation, can send well, can live in a particular way. We're going to talk about that a lot more. And then he finishes this passage off and he says, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And two verses later, he hammers this home in verse 17. Consequently, faith comes through hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. So takeaway number one, we see this from this thematic passage of this Bible conference. People cannot be saved unless the gospel is preached to them. Let's make sure that we root all of our missions in that. We've got to have goers that go. They've got to be able to preach. And by preaching, that means in an intelligible way. And they've got to be able to communicate the gospel in a knowledgeable way. You have to know the biblical worldview. You've got to know your Bible. You've got to know the gospel. And you've got to know their worldview, the, the way that they think. The MBMBs had a radically different worldview from the one that I was used to in San Diego, California. And it took us two and a half years to get to the point to where we understood when we teach Cain and Abel, this is where their mind is going to go. When we teach Abraham and Isaac and Abraham's about ready to take that knife back, when we teach Judas, this is where their mind is going to go. Let's take the biblical worldview. Let's take their worldview and let's bring them into intentional conflict. Let's preach in such a way so that there is direct rub in the way that I believe. And brothers and sisters, that happens all over the world, whether in Shadron, Nebraska, San Diego, California, or Papua New Guinea. When you teach the gospel, you teach it in such a way to where it brings an impact on the existing worldview. Because otherwise, if you don't do that, you'll get what's called syncretism. 
And syncretism is the underlying belief system, and we paste Jesus on top. You don't get displacement, you get addition. If you get addition, you get a new religion. It's not Christianity, it's not the original, it's a mixture of the two, and that's worse than the original. So you're pushing for the preaching of God's word. I remember when we were teaching the Embies, when we finished the gospel message, we got to the end of the teaching, and the Yimbies came to us at night. Uh, so we had a house, and it was up on these big poles. There's about eight of them in a row, so four rows of eight. And so they had helped us build it. It was made out of jungle poles for the most part. So they knew where, uh, where we cooked our food. They knew where our bathroom was located. They knew exactly where I slept because they helped build our house with us. And so it had bark walls, and it had corrugated aluminum roofs so that we could catch the water. Uh, We had solar panels. We were green before it was cool. Um, And so all of these things. And so when the Yembis wanted to get me at night, they had this long pole that they hid in the jungle. And the reason they hid it is because when I found it, I would bust it up because they would hit the bottom of the floor, and you just thought Armageddon was upon you. Like you would wake up from a dead sleep because they would whop, whop, and whoa, what in the world? So sure enough, two weeks after we presented the gospel to the Yembies, uh, we're laying in bed at night, and whop, whop, bottom of the floor. And so I wake up, go to the window, yell out there, who is it? And it's a typical Yembi answer. It's me, it's me. I know it's you. Who are you? He says, it's me, your tribal father. One of my tribal fathers, the one that was calling out, he was the one, uh, one of the guys that was of the 4550 that had gotten saved. And so I grabbed my flashlight, go outside, and EMBMB, it's really rude to shine your flashlight on people's eyes. It ruins their night vision. And so you're supposed to shine it on their feet. And everybody, about 1,000 people, they can recognize each other based off of their feet. Well, I can't recognize anybody based off of their feet. They can recognize me pretty easily because I'm the only white guy in there. But anyways, they're... I'm shining on the feet, and I cannot figure out who it is. There's seven guys there, and so I start working my way up to the kneecaps, and then I recognize a certain pair of shorts, and uh, I remember that guy's belly button. and these. So I'm getting, oh, okay, these are seven believers, seven people who we believed at that time understood the gospel. And guys, I'll, I'll never forget this. This is two weeks after they were saved. Uh, they came up at night, and my tribal father, who's one of the chiefs of the clan, says, uh, eldest white son, that's what he calls me. There's, I'm his only white son, but anyways, he calls me eldest white son. Uh, eldest white son, we want to know when we're going. And what do you mean? He says, well, if, the, if what the book says is true, our sister village that's three mountain ranges away, the, the ones in Changriman, they're going to the place of fire, right? Yeah, that's true. So when are we going? Will it be tomorrow or will it be the next day? When are we going to Changriman? to help our sister village who hasn't heard the gospel. Two weeks old in the faith and the initial impetus, when are we going? When are we going to those places that still haven't heard the gospel? Guys, I, when I got back to the U.S. in 2016, we finished up the work there. I was the lead translator for the Pauline epistles. I did the gospels except for the gospel of Mark and the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That was my job. And then we would taught them all the way through the book of Revelation, and we had elders and deacons, and there's a strong church that exists in Yembi today, and they're sending out their own missionaries for the first time in another year. But when we were in there, and we were getting ready to 
get into the book of Acts, get into the book of Romans. When I came back in 2016, we had a church that had offered to fly the elders and the elders' wives back to the United States for a missions conference like this one. And we had a wealthy businessman a couple years ago do the same thing. And I wouldn't do it for two reasons. Number one, it would blow their world apart. Like it would just, when they arrive at LAX or Denver or whatever, it would just be like, what is going on? I mean, it would just be too much for them. That's reason number one. But the bigger reason, to be honest, the Yembies would probably stand up in a group like this and they would ask the question, because again, these are forceful, pushy people. And we'll talk about that a little bit tomorrow. They would ask, how, how long have you had this? How long have you known this talk? When are you going? When are you going to the places that haven't heard? Because they're pressing into this issue two weeks into their conversion. Now, they all weren't mature, and they definitely weren't capable of taking the gospel. They had to be discipled more and more. But that impetus, that heart reaction that is edged towards how do we get to people How do we get to people groups? How do we get to language groups? How do we as a church, us as a family, me as an individual, when I stand before the King of Kings someday and I give an account for my life, what will I say about that? Being a good husband, being a good student, being a good wife, being a good mother, those are all things under your control. But what about this aspect? What will the King say on that day? Guys, I hope that our hearts are naturally inclined there. And then takeaway number two for the verse at the very beginning that we were talking about, Acts, or excuse me, yeah, Acts 24. Takeaway number two, or Acts 26, it says this in verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What Paul is pointing to, and guys, this is such an important concept that so often gets overlooked in missions, is that we're not, we're saved as individuals. You can't be saved for your mother or for your kids. You're saved you alone by what you understand the gospel to be and how Christ saves you from your sins. But once you're saved, you're not saved to be alone. You're saved into community. Look what he says there. And a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He's gathered into the body of believers. The great commission was never meant to be an individual pursuit. Well, I feel the calling to go into missions. Does your church feel that same calling too? Because if they don't, you shouldn't be going, brother and sister. Paul, the first missionary, remember how Acts 14, he's sent out by the church in Antioch. The church sends him out. The means of the Great Commission and the goal of the Great Commission is the local church. It's not good enough to see converts. It's not good enough to see disciples. They have to be gathered into a local church because here's the honest truth. Disciples rise and fall in one generation. They live and they die. Churches, by God's good grace, churches that are planted well last generations. They keep going. By God's good grace, this church, the YMBMB church, my church in Claremont, San Diego, Claremont Emanuel Baptist Church, when we're all dead and gone, those churches, if Christ tarries, will still be going. Teaching the gospel faithfully, discipling, bringing new people in, and having them be brought to maturity 
to further sanctification. The goal of the Great Commission is not just to make disciples. We're going to press into Matthew 28 tomorrow and see what Matthew 28, 20 says. The goal is to see those disciples gathered into a local church. There was a prominent Protestant evangelical uh, last year. I about died and he tweeted out, God didn't call us to plant churches. He called us to make disciples. Hmm. Not true, not true. If you read all of Matthew 28, not just 18, 19, but you read 20, you press into these things. Consider this, the spread of churches is the spread of the gospel in the book of Acts. Jesus gives the great commission in Matthew 28. He also gives it in Mark 10. He also gives it in Luke 24. He also gives it in John 20. But he presses these, the, the great commission into these guys. But then how the great commission is played out, we see that in the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, we see this. Consider the church at Jerusalem resulting from the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. In Acts 11, 19 and 30, the establishment of the church in Antioch. Acts 14, 23, elders are attached to churches. Acts 14, 27, the church is the basic Christian community that is gathered for any significant event. Acts 15, 41, Paul in Syria and Cilicia strengthening the churches. Acts 16.5, the result of the Jerusalem Council, churches are strengthened and grow in numbers. 1 Corinthians 11.18, Hebrews 10.25, the assumption is that Christians are coming together regularly. That's what we do on Sunday, on the Lord's Day. Churches gather together. 2 Corinthians 11.28, Paul's concern for all the churches is, a paramount, is paramount in his thinking. It's listed right alongside the other concerns like whippings, stonings, shipwrecks, and churches. The thrust of the New Testament, the thrust of the Great Commission, let's not lose sight of this, is we go, we see converts made by God's grace, we disciple those converts, and we gather them into local churches because that's what will last, and that's the model that the apostles laid down for us. The goal of turning people from darkness to light, from Satan to God, to be numbered among the saints, namely to be brought into local congregations that are outposts. Remember this, the local church is an outpost of heaven on earth. This is where Christians gather. This is where Christians get fed. This is where Christians encourage each other. Not in a building, but when the people of God gather together on the Lord's Day, we practice baptism, we practice the Lord's Supper, we sing songs, we hear the teaching of God's word, we gather those things together. That's the local church. That's the goal of the Great Commission. We press until we see that accomplished. We see that clearly from the passage in Acts 26. So we're going to hit one Great Commission passage tonight, just so we close on that. Turn over to Acts 1. This is the second best known of all of the Great Commission passages. Acts 1, and this is not a command. Matthew 28, 16 through 20, and Luke uh, 20 is also a command. This is a prophecy of what will happen. So from this, we can draw certain lessons, but this is a prophecy that Christ gave to his disciples. It's different than Matthew 28. These are different times, different places. They're not the same. So Acts 1, verse 6. Let's read this and let's understand what this has and the implications this has for us today. Acts 1, 6. Then they gathered around him. Who are they? They are the apostles. We don't know if it was just the 11. Remember, Judas is off the scene. Or if there was almost 70 of them or 100 of them. But the followers of Jesus, we know, were there on this mountain. 
So they're gathering around Jesus. Then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And there's a lot of grief that usually gets given to the apostles about this question. Like, how did you not see it all the way through? But here's the honest truth. Remember the Old Testament. The Old Testament model for evangelism was not Christians or the people of God, the nation of Israel, going to the nations. That was not the model in the Old Testament. The model in the Old Testament was people from outside would come and would see the people of God, the nation of Israel, how they lived in communion with their God, and from that they would be converted to understand, believe, and follow the God of heaven, Yahweh. That was the model of the Old Testament. So the disciples are asking, hey, are you going to restore us? So this is what's going to happen. Is is Israel about to be risen back into prominence again? We've been under the thumb of the Romans now for decades. Is this about the time? Is the kingdom coming? And Jesus instills an entire new paradigm. He says this. He said to them, it's not for you to know the dates and the times the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. You will be my witnesses. This is a complete paradigm shift. Nations used to come to us. Now we go to the nations. This is the model of the New Testament. We no longer wait. And by God's good grace, the nations are coming. See, what a lot of people do is they try and allegorize this. Okay, well, wait. Nations are coming to the United States. They're coming from foreign countries. You guys have a university here in this uh, community, and you have a lot of, I would guess, people from different contexts coming into this. And that's wonderful. If you're not taking advantage of those opportunities, if you're not witnessing to your neighbors, your coworkers, the people that you interact with, I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure you understand the gospel. To be saved from your sins, to have the weight of your sins gone, you're made right with God again. You are brought into a right relationship with the King of heaven. Why would we not want to share that with people? But that's not missions. You know what that's called? That's called being a faithful Christian being a faithful Christian. But missions, what Jesus is outlining here, is we go to the nations. And there's a lot of allegories that kind of pop out in this, pastors in particular, try and pop this out. Okay, we're Jerusalem. This will be our Jerusalem. Nebraska will be our Judea. The United States will be Samaria. And the ends of the earth, well, they're the real ends of the earth. But they're going to allegorize that. That happens quite often. But here's the honest truth. When Jesus said Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, he really meant the actual literal geographic Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. He didn't mean this to be taken allegorically. And from the book of Acts, we see that the gospel did spread throughout Jerusalem. It did make it to Judea. And it did make it to Samaria. And it did start to make it to the ends of the earth, but it hasn't made it there in totality. Of all the places, praise God, there are good churches in Samaria. Today, in 2022, there are good churches in Judea. There are good churches in Jerusalem. The ends of the earth are the ones that still remain. When we were, I remember this, 
we were translating the book of Romans, and we had a guy that was one of my coworkers in the process. He's a Yembi Yembi. And um, he, he was helping me. His name was Tarangawi. And Tarangawi and me, I'd sat him down when we started translating, and he was a believer at this time. And so uh, by the time we got to the book of Romans, he understood the gospel fairly clearly. And I told him, Tarangawi, we're only going to translate from this book. We're not going to bring in other books. And we were working through the book of Romans, and we got to Romans chapter 4, and there was a pretty difficult spot that I was trying to work on, and it was just taking me a lot of time. And so I reached over, and I grabbed another copy of the New Testament. It was a different version from the version that I was translating from. And Tarangawi goes, wait, 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 wait. What's this other book that you pulled in? I thought you said we were only translating from this book. And I said, Tarangawi, this is, this is a different version in my language. And Tarangawi did what the Yembis do when they get surprised at something. He goes, <laughs> and he goes, and then he asked the, the $100 question how many versions do you have in your language? And it's just dawned on me right then and there, and I'm starting to get really squeamish. And I'll be honest with you, I just straight up lied. I said, Tarangawi, we've, we've got about seven versions in our language. And Tarangawi just goes, seven? You have seven versions in your language? We've been working on this for three years. And we probably have another three years to go. It would end up taking us nine years to see the scriptures translated. We've been working, and you've got seven versions in your language? Guys, I came back to the United States after that encounter. is on my second furlough. And I went to a local Christian bookstore, and I asked them, how many versions are there in the English language? You know how many there are? Over 800. You add the study Bibles, you get into thousands does God love the English-speaking world so much more than the rest of the world? Or have we missed some critical component to what the King of Kings has given us as the people of God to do? You go to Jerusalem first, praise God. You go to Judea next, you go to Samaria next, and you keep going, you keep pressing to those places that still have yet to hear the gospel. This is the mission of the church. This is why we exist. We're faithful fathers. We're faithful husbands. We're faithful wives. We're faithful mothers. We're good students. We're good members of the community. By God's good grace, we are faithful church members. We show up on Sunday. But that is not our mission. That's what we do because we are Christians. The mission that God left us to do you take my message and you go to those places that still have yet to hear and you keep pressing on into that or you support that through various means. You add whatever you can to see those places brought into light. That is why the church exists. That's what we're here for. That's our identity. That's kind of like we hang that over top like a football coach does on the whiteboard as our primary goal. This is what we are about as a church. And there are various members within the body. We're not all goers. But if we're not goers, we're senders. And there are various giftings that we bring into that to see the message of God's grace brought to the ends of the earth. Let me pray with us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for the example of the apostle Paul and how he gives out his testimony 
the gospel must be preached to the nations. And once it is preached, we gather those followers into churches. Father, thank you for this church that puts an emphasis on the Great Commission, on being faithful to the ends of the earth. I pray for the moms and dads in here who consider their own sons and daughters possibly doing this. Give them courage, Father. Give them sustenance. Give them a way of thinking about this world that is temporary. We're sojourners. We're aliens. This is not our home. And Father, for the young people in here that could do this, that could take the gospel somewhere where it has never been before, give them an uncommon measure of courage to walk away from dreams, ambitions, hopes, to possibly do something that will resonate for all eternity. Father, we pray that you would be in our midst, that you would give us the type of thinking that will resonate, that will honor you, that will make much of you here and around the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.